Hi and welcome to episode 49 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger and my guest today is Bernard Ollis. When you stand before one of Bernard's paintings, you're taken on a journey. It might be down a windy road, down a back lane of Sydney, or across a curvy bridge in Paris. Or you might find yourself in a park, or a swimming pool, or a fishing boat. And you might meet people or animals along the way. But more than that, you'll be turning corners and seeing what's beyond the buildings and the fences around you without ever leaving that 2D plane. His wonderful use of perspective and colour takes us to a moment in twisted space which is brimming with optimism. He's had over 50 solo shows exhibiting from London to Paris to Berlin to Shanghai to Auckland and, of course, right across Australia. Many major art institutions have acquired his work and his paintings are held in many private collections. But he's also found time to make his mark in art education, holding leading positions in universities, and he's probably best known for his time as the director of the National Arts School in Sydney, a position he held for over a decade. He continued painting throughout that time, but for the last 10 years or so, he's been a full-time practising artist, and when I say full-time, I mean seven days a week. I met Bernard in his huge studio in Sydney in the lead-up to his show at Harvey Galleries, which will have opened a couple of days before this podcast goes online. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. Bernard was born in Bath in England and grew up in a working-class family. We pick up our conversation when he was in his early 20s after he'd completed his qualifications at Cardiff College of Art and Design and was considering his next step. Would it be a diploma of education, a course in art therapy, or should he pursue the almost impossible dream of getting into the Royal College of Art? Nobody from Cardiff College of Art had ever got to the Royal College of Art before, and they they had about 850 applicants from all over the world into the painting department, and they chose 18. So, So the odds were pretty stiff. Um, and I oh, went with my portfolio, wow. and I got in. So you weren't <laughs> expecting to get no, in? No, I, I, oh. I, I was going to deal with the backups and work out whether I did the dip ed, uh, which could have taken me on an entirely different path, probably meant I wouldn't have come to Australia. So you wanted most to get into the Royal College yes. of Arts? Yes, oh, yeah, 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 I yeah. mean, that was, that was the big one to go for, but that's a little bit like for a boy... Um, in England is a little bit like, would you like to score the winning goal at Wembley or something? And you say, yes, please. That's me. I mean, you don't expect it to happen. So I applied, I got in, and I can remember ringing my father and saying, I got into the Royal College, Dad. And uh, and he said, what does that mean? And I said, well, it means three more years with just enough money to live um, in a studio in the Victorian Albert Museum or the back of the Victorian Albert Museum in London and it means three more years. And he said, well, what you just done four years? What do you need three more years for? What are you going to do then? I said, oh, I don't worry about that. That's three years off. I'm, you know, to me, it was just the excitement. <laughs> so he didn't realise how no, significant He didn't understand the implications. I do want to talk about some of your lecturers or your tutors because I think they, it included some big names from what yes. I understand. Yes, and of course what happens is when you, when you meet them for the first time, you sort of, 
you're in awe, and then you meet them the second and the third time, and they just become the people that wander around the studio. But I know that my first tutor was Peter Blake, who had designed the Sgt. Pepper LP cover mm. and, and was a, a very significant pop artist and was knighted, etc., for his services. And David Hockney, of course, was there. Um, mm. And he was terrific. And uh, uh, Did not, you learn anything particular from them that you can remember? Um, well, uh, I can remember Peter Blake kept saying to me, paint smaller, paint very, very small. You keep making them too large all the time. David Hockney would say, paint any shape and size you want to. But he <laughs> said, keep looking, keep looking. Always look and observe. Don't, don't rely on your memory. Go out there and sit and draw. Draw things. Keep drawing. Mm. Because it was a day when there wasn't that much life drawing taking place. Art schools had sort of moved away from that. So he was his emphasis emphasis was to observe and look but he liked my work and he liked the the he he say you're there's an offbeat thing that's happening in your work which is very interesting mm. just keep going with your instincts and so you know mm. i mean all these people really gave me confidence to just keep going yeah. but what it did do um what really it gave me was a kind of ticket because i had a master's from the royal college of art london i'm at the age of 25 26 I could go, not everywhere in the world, but there's a, I could apply for a number of positions and people would look at my CV and say, oh, quite impressive. Yeah. That's how I ended up being a lecturer at the tender age of 26 in the Darwin Community College. What a change. Yeah. What a change in lifestyle because it was like it was only a year or two after... Cyclone Tracy. That's right. And it, it had been flattened and there was nobody there. Uh, the, I mean, I didn't realise, well, you wouldn't, what a cyclone can do. You know it would knock down a few buildings, but it also stripped the trees and it meant the birds didn't migrate through their normal paths. There, It, it, it was a really was a, a battered town mm. and it was only picking itself up. The population was very small. And I learned what isolation was, being in Darwin. And, uh, mm. But I arrived there and uh, I made a go of it. And I went from, as I tell friends or told friends at the time, I went from Chelsea, a suburb of London, to Casuarina, a suburb of Darwin. <laughs> and it was just, you know, and it was like chalk and cheese. Oh, yeah. It would have been quite humid as oh, well. I've never been to Darwin, yeah. actually. I'd well, like it, was, it was very hot, humid, very yeah. isolated. Yeah. But... Um, and I was unsure what to do, but the deal was if I went over and did, I think, a year's teaching, uh, after that, they would pay my airfares back again to the UK. So uh, the deal was to come over for a year, see what I thought. And it was, and I remember coming up to that first year, um, I'd already done a bit of travelling in Australia, but I, in that first year I thought, should I go back? And I suddenly realised that if I went back then to London, I would have lo lost my place in the queue because other people had stepped in while I'd gone yeah. towards teaching or yeah, yeah, showing yeah. or well, exhibiting, etc. So I stayed, and I partly stayed because someone had said, let's go out to Kakadu National Park, and let's go. I went to and saw and was excited and explored lots of other areas. And also, I'd just been given a show at Macquarie Galleries in Sydney, 1978 this was, uh, and a big exhibition in Sydney at that time. And that was very exciting. Oh, uh, okay, so I, you were painting all through this period always, in Darwin? 
Oh, I painted wherever I went. The first thing I did was say, where's my studio? How can I? And I was stuck in a caravan when I first arrived in Darwin. And I was desperate to find a space where I could put up a canvas. Or So I drew. I mean, I yeah. drew on the kitchen table. And, and the work did change from a somewhat darker, greyer London too tropical intense you know <laughs> turn up all the lights uh, Darwin um, so yeah. it was an interesting thing that I went through yeah. so so yes yeah. that was yeah, a, yeah. a big chapter of my life yeah. and and although I was always planning to return suddenly after about 18 months two years uh, there was uh, the only reason I went back was to visit my mother and father or old friends. I know I thought to myself, I'm going to spend a bit longer here now in Australia. The girlfriend I had in England, you know, we'd obviously we'd parted and other things had happened. So I, I suddenly sensed that I was on an adventure that I wanted to maintain and keep up with. Mm. And um, well, you well after that you went. Uh, you know, I mean, you held very high positions in a lot of universities. So you mm. went to La Trobe University. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you ultimately ended up in Sydney mm. um, as the director of N the National Arts School. Yes. And for um, any overseas listeners of the podcast who might not be aware of the National Arts School, it's one of the most significant art schools in Australia and has um, many leading Australian artists have come from there and have actually taught there as well. And a few, uh, quite a few of, of my guests on the podcast um, have either come from there or or have taught there. Um, what was that experience like? That must have been the, the sort of the pinnacle of your sort of career. In, um, in some ways, I say to people, or, or reflecting upon it now, I think it was the best and the worst um, because it was heavy politics, and it, when you're always cap in hand trying to get more funding, and you're it's from the state government. Yes, yeah. state government. So I, so whether it was Labour or Liberal, um, you know, it was always hard work, and you always pushing whatever, the proverbial uphill battles that you're going through to try to uh, get funding. So you're dealing with that. You're also opening exhibitions in the evening. But when I arrived at the National Art School, they didn't have any degree courses. They just ran diplomas. So I introduced degree programs. Mm. We only had half the campus when I first arrived and I pushed hard and politically won the battle to take over the entire campus. Mm. I built the gallery which exists there now on the campus mm. which is second to none for Sydney people would know that. Yes. Um, I still painted, still kept my art going during that period. Yeah, I was going to ask but you it, about that. But it drained me mm. and it was to the point where I think I would have been carried out had I not left because it was it was a strain it was mm, a drain mm. and politically I was always in battles you know the staff wanted one thing the students wanted one thing the politicians wanted another thing mm. they were asking me why I couldn't keep everybody in check the students were saying why don't you fight with us to get more this or more that or whatever mm. it so was you f it sounds like a lonely job it was because you're at the top mm. and you can't go out in the evening and get drunk with somebody and tell people People, you're keeping a lot of secrets yeah. and you're trying to steer the art school through a very what was a very difficult political time. And how do you find that it affected or did it affect your, your uh, practice, your painting practice? Um, well, it, it affected the time I could put in. 
but um, I still would find my sanctuary was to come to the studio at the end of the day and just step into my Alice in Wonderland world of painting and just mm. just go off creatively, put on my favourite piece of music and then just mm. go go with the flow, as they say, and just reinvent. That was my sanity. Mm. If my painting, I've always said this in life, if my painting is going well, it's uh, all the satellites that run around it, which includes my, uh, my love life, uh, my teaching, the politics of running art schools or whatever else, all those things around it are all fall into place so much easier if oh, if I'm centered and I feel confident about my own art practice and what I'm doing. Well talking about your art practice and what you're doing at the moment let's jump forward to your current show which is opening tomorrow uh, on Friday night actually That's right. yep. as, uh, at Harvey Galleries in Mossman mm -hmm. and it's called Being There. Yep. And it's a collection of beautiful paintings. It's absolutely stunning. And it includes a few cityscapes of Sydney and um, also Paris, where you spend part of the part of your um, yep. uh, part of the year. And um, I just wanted to hone in on one painting in particular, and that is uh, one that I really loved called Roden's Lane, Sydney. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a really striking example of something you're very well known for, and that is your very interesting use of perspective and this particular painting I'll just describe it for people who are listening but we're looking down this glorious laneway which is sort of this purple road with buildings on one side a fence on another side but of course there are no right angles in this painting I don't think there are right angles in hardly any of your paintings it's this beautiful curvy lines uh, which gives this wonderful sense of well, movement and, and a very unusual perspective. Even the telegraph pole is curved. The Sydney Tower in the, in the background is curved. Can you talk to me a little bit about this approach, your approach with perspective? Um, you, you, you've observed those points very well, and, and um, they are conscious to try to create something that doesn't look like a photograph or doesn't look like a fixed-point perspective observation of something. That's the starting point. In other words, I stand there and I look at Roden's Lane and I look at what you can see. You couldn't see Sydney Tower from there. You couldn't see lots of things. What I do is I walk halfway up the, uh, the road and I think, oh, just over on the left, if I lean over, oh, you can see it. OK, I'll draw a picture what I can see from there. And then I come back down to the bottom again and I look at it and I... So what I end up with is a a composite of a number of different viewpoints and an organic sense of flowing and curving and moving our way through the space. Mm. I always like to say that I like to think that the viewer is actually involved and part of the journey yeah. going through. Yeah. So it takes into account the seconds or minutes of time that it would take to wander through and it also takes artistic liberties as well because you can't see the green fence from one angle uh, from you know the angle yeah, where yeah. and I've increased the shadows to later on in the day because it makes it more dramatic I, I play around mm. with the spaces yeah I think you've you've described as a twisted sense of space in a yeah. way yeah and it's and it's and it's a feeling like if I look at an object and this goes right back to learning about cubism when I was 20 years of age and somebody said to me, 
we have this, this is what Picasso is doing, they would say to me, or Brat's doing. He's got an object, and he's taking into account moving to the left-hand side of it, the right-hand side of it, curving it upside down, looking at it from the bottom, looking at it from different things, and trying to find a way of putting all that. It might be a guitar, it might mm. be somebody's face, it might be a... A, a table, but trying to get all that information in. It might be a billiard table, or mm. a, in, in Brock's case, and try to put that information in and twisting spaces around as you go. So I like the idea, and this is an intuitive thing, um, I like the idea of entering into a space and then taking into account what it's like from 20 degree angle to the to the right what it's like up a ladder going on to the left mm. what it's like if you lie on the floor and look at it what you can see and trying to bring all that information in and get the very very best which as i say is the discovery of time and moving through the space and trying to involve yourself and it's organic as well yes we're yeah, hovering yeah. and floating through because i want the viewer to feel like they're actually there they're not looking at it um uh, from a car window or in an objective sense, they're subjectively um, thrown into the That's space. That's right. Yeah, you're sort of moving through the space. And is that, is that your desire? I think at some point I saw on your website that you don't want to be dull and boring. Is it a bit of that? Is it a bit of you, you want to move away from the everyday? You want to make life uh, uh, see the excitement in life? Is that? Um, yes, I, I think it is partly to do that. I, I think it's my... I don't know if it's my duty, but it's my ambition whenever I start a painting to make it exciting for me to explore as I'm going, but in particular, therefore, for an audience or any audience that looks at it at the end to be ex as excited as I am in mm. entering that journey and being part of it. So that's why twist and turn forms. I don't do it just at random and just toss any old thing in. I mean, it's, it's a considered approach which mm. has taken a, a fair while to learn. I mean, I've discarded certain ways of doing it because that hasn't worked. I've brought in new ways. Mm. I've played around with shadows a lot more because they're important to help as devices to link one part of the painting to the other. Mm. But it's, it's playing around with spaces, looking at it from above, below the side. Mm. And I think if I do that, people that like my work tend to like it a lot, which is a wonderful compliment. Yeah. People that don't like my work tell me so immediately as well. <laughs> I've had en engineers say, if you painted that bridge like that, it would fall down. <laughs> I say, thank God I'm not an engineer. Yeah. Well, you like it. you've got quite a few bridges in your paintings, <laughs> yeah. actually. Yep. They lend themselves, I think, especially the curved bridges, they yes. lend themselves to your uh, particular Yes, style. and if they're not curved, I usually make them more curved <laughs> by the end right. of it. Because I'm twisting. Because the other thing as well is it's taking the eye for a walk mm. as Paul Clay mm. years ago said the artist I like the idea of, of, of actually moving you through space so there's not too many full stops you keep curving back in and meandering mm. around so your eye is continuously flowing through mm. the spaces so a leaf links or a branch of a tree links with a lamppost which takes the eye back to a shadow which brings you back to a building which brings you to a skyscraper which takes you you know mm. you just keep flowing mm. your way through curving your way through spaces and do you have to find do you find that when you're sort of in the middle of a painting do you find you might encounter a problem where it's just not, the composition is not working because of a different often, perspective? Often, often, because I, I don't want to be too, uh, 
I don't, I don't want to know too much. I don't want to have it all mapped out and then just do a painting by numbers, as I explain. I don't want it all to fall into place. It's got to be an interesting, exciting journey for me as well. And I need to look. And so, yes, a lot of things change en route. Mm. And so you will block out, you might block out a whole section to redo those yes. parts. I, I, I was very guilty years ago, not quite so much now, but of putting too much in. I used to throw everything, including the kitchen sink and whatever, everything, <laughs> everything appeared in the painting. But I quite like that, actually, yeah. with your early work. Well, that, that, there's aspects of it that do work, but sometimes mm. it's just too complex and you can't see the wood through the trees. Mm. And therefore, the, the very good bit of, I don't know, perspective or shape or form or structure that's there is, is, is like matted up with a whole load of other things so you can't see it. So sometimes you have to be a bit ruthless mm. and you sometimes have to move a figure um, six inches to the right or 20 centimetres to the left, whatever it is, and you have to make some uh, severe alterations en route. I've never been frightened of doing that. Um, if a painting requires that, then you have to do it. Mm. Um, so I, I, I made brave moves and some of my better work have been where I've thrown everything in and slowly pulled things out and put, you know, blackened curtains behind things or whatever. And you end up with the five or six main elements working dramatically in a kind of theatre set, mm. all sitting on the stage and all working for each other. That's an exciting painting, particularly since I didn't know at the beginning where it was going and what was happening. And sometimes, you know, the painting has been there for six months and I've almost abandoned it. And I've, I've even done with some of the larger paintings, picked up a, um, picked up a I don't know, a paintbrush and, and, and written rubbish over <laughs> an area so that the following morning I have to come in and deal with it. You probably have some great negative spaces coming between yeah. the letters. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's very interesting. Mm. And do you find, though, that you have to be at the point of almost abandoning it for you to take that risk? Or do you feel like you have to push yourself to take risks even when you think it's um, it's going it, it okay? Varies. It varies. Yeah. I mean, there's not even a simple answer to that because sometimes you do a painting on the Monday and everything flows together and by the end of the day it's almost there. And you think, great, I'll try that on the Tuesday. Well, the following Tuesday and the following Tuesday, <laughs> you're still, you're saying, why can't, couldn't I get all those things to happen in the same way? I think it's because each time I go into a painting, it's a new experience. I make the analogy with the writer. It must be like starting to write a novel or a story or writing the first chapter and so off you go. You have no idea whether or not it's all going to, the grammar, the syntax, the vocabulary is all going to work together and you're going to end up flowing yeah, like Shakespeare right. or whether or not it's going to just look like you are incompetent. And sometimes I think I look like I'm painting with my, my toes rather than my hands. I just, <laughs> it's so clumsy and awkward and things are just not working out at all. Yeah. But well, that's well, the experience. Yeah, well, talking about narrative, um, your, your works, I mean, I think John MacDonald actually said something interesting about your work in, in, with respect to narrative, and I'm going to find it. Oh, he said, he likes to set the scene but hates conclusions. I thought that mm. was a really interesting comment because it is, it's like a moment in time that you're capturing and it's not necessarily, you're not spelling out a whole story. No. Well, I think if you set, 
if you explain the whole story, in some ways, you're an illustrator. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. There's some great illustrators around. But I think it's a little bit like if, you, uh, if uh, in a book you have someone doing an illustration of the person walking down the road and going, you know, and, and catching the ferry or something, because that's the story, then you've illustrated that scene. I like to set up a number of clues or write half a sentence and allow the viewer to come in and go off in there. Mm, so if they're in mm. a good mood or a bad mood or in different mood, they just different ways of being able to come up with those conclusions. I don't want to make those conclusions myself. We were actually just talking about your beautiful work, Enchantment, which is leaning up against the wall yeah. over there, where you've got, you know, a pianist sitting in a boat. You know, actually, that's the other thing. It's very enigmatic. Mm. And as you say, each the viewer can put their own interpretation onto and it. And I like doing that very much. I don't want to be too prescriptive. Sometimes, uh, I mean, for example, there's certain periods in my life uh, where I've, I've, I've lived a long time, so I've gone through the good and the bad. I've gone through divorces and all sorts of things. When I was painting around the divorce time, they were all, they were all too black. They were all too heavy. They were almost too prescriptive. And I didn't even realize that it was happening. But it was obviously the frame of mind I was in. Mm. I, like to have, I like to have a certain sense of optimism there, Realism combined with optimism, but a certain enchantment about, you know, uh, and humanity about, you know, mankind can pull through and these things can occur. And, mm -hmm. and we do believe in, uh, you know, and we all like uh, Hollywood and films and, and things that are taking us escapist and take mm -hmm. us beyond our present patch or mm -hmm. what we have. I like to talk about humankind in that way. Well, and I think that optimism comes through a lot in, in your colour. Is that something that you've had from day one, do you think? Like this love of colour? Um, I was, yes, I think so. I mean, I always, I always felt the artists that I was drawn towards when I, were when I was young were people like Van Gogh or people like Edward Munch or Expressionists. And I thought that intensity or turning those knobs up of intensity um, made the thing just more theatrical, more dramatic, more intense, more whatever, mm. but more rather than less. Mm. And I think colour, I mean, you know, colour used badly can make it just, a, as we know, a, it can all fall apart. But if you can use colour well, I mean, colour combines itself with tone and, it can, and it's a whole and it's an experiential thing that takes a long while to work out mm. greys are very very good color between lots of bright intense primary colors so you can use it doesn't all have to be the brightest colors that you mm. use you can play things off against each other so it's about getting all those balances mm. and do you think those early days of art school where you did the colour wheel and you mm. study Eaton's and everything. Do you think that helps? Um, yes, I do. I think that you need to have something to react from or react to. So I think having some knowledge about this is how this works, to understand in life drawing something about foreshortening, to understand how ellipses hold together and you know cubes hold together and how shapes work, if you have all that all that information in front of you, it gives you a greater um, 
a greater range of mark making and a greater range of things that you can react to or react from. Uh, I think all those things are important. If you don't have that knowledge in the first place, then anything goes and you're not sure what you're doing yeah. and why you're doing it. Yeah. And you also don't know when things don't work. In my case, if things don't work, I can sit back objectively and say, "This, do why doesn't it work? Mm. Because it's too complicated or it's too dark or it's too whatever. Mm. But I have some answers because of the things that I learnt en route, training or being educated and looking and observing other mm. painters and, mm. and important and great painters from Matisse to Picasso to, to Brett Whiteley to uh, Peter Booth to uh, Aida Tomescu to a whole range yeah, of people yeah. that I've looked at and think, don't they handle that well? Look at their strengths there and try to pick out those sorts of things. And I am always saying to students, go out and look and work out what it is you like and work out what it is you don't like. Mm. But then ask the question, why? Why don't you like it? What is it that doesn't work in the painting or in the image or in the shapes? Why don't you like it? Mm. Because it would tell you more about what, you, what your yeah. strengths are and where you're totally. going. Totally. I wanted to also talk about your self-portraits because you've had you've done quite a few self-portraits and mm. uh, they've been hung in this under if you say several times. So there's and in particular, last year I really enjoyed um, one of your paintings called Self-Portrait After Matisse, and I, I've heard you talk about self-portraits and you've said about it that every now and then you like to reflect, and you're reflecting on where you're at and where you want to go. And I'm looking at this portrait. It, it seems to me like an introspective type of pose where you're standing with your hands in front, sort of clasped in front of you and with quite a simple background compared to some other works where it's like a harlequin type a pattern at the back of orange colours. Um, where were you at with that painting? Um, well, yes, you're right in, in your lead up to this that I look at myself at certain stages um, and that painting the one you're referring to with sort of diamond shapes behind I noted that Matisse had done a painting of somebody and he'd used that diamond shape I've used it in a different way but that's why I pay homage to him to sort of get me on that path I wanted something simple and stark a little bit like the um, you know, the curtains of a backdrop in a fairground or, or somewhere or on a stage and place a figure. And the figure I wanted, I didn't want to be dark, moody or whatever, but more a vulnerable figure. As I get older, um, I look at myself and the, the, the questions that I'm asking of myself as is, you're getting older, Bernard. <laughs> You're not looking like the spring chicken you once did. Um, you know, uh, I'd had some serious illnesses, and I think I was reflecting upon that, and that I'm still here and still want to be painting in 20 years from now. But you, once you have serious illnesses, you do think about your time and longevity, etc. So there's a lot of things wrapped up in that, which to do with um, a kind of... It's not entirely vulnerable or pessimistic mm. but it is open-ended as to once again it's writing half a sentence um, it's still me thinking about um, I can no longer sprint down the street like I used to mm. I have to walk a little bit more slowly etc etc so mm. I'm, I'm dealing I'm trying to come to terms with who I am what I am 
where I am and, and, and trying to make a comment that has a vulnerability that other people might relate to, um, it, even if they're younger or certainly if they're older and they start looking at... In, in, I can make an analogy, and I'm not putting myself on this pedestal, but I can make an analogy with Rembrandt, who dealt with some of the most vulnerable people, self-portraits, towards the end of his life, looking at himself, warts and all, mm. not trying to look at himself as, you know, this is my image or my alter ego, or this is like my film star, you know, pose, mm. but to show the vulnerability mm. of age and show what's happening. I'm trying to come to terms with that and mm. that's in that sense it's, it's a psychological take on who I am at the moment. I've I painted the head and the hands I don't know how many times but I mean this is the thing about where you know the first time I painted it I think oh it's almost there I just need a minor alteration well the once I started on the minor alterations I think it, I felt like I was going through plastic surgery because by the time I'd come out the other <laughs> end like six months later I must have painted that head I don't know how many times I knew it wasn't quite right and at certain stages I thought well it's 90% right I had to get to the point where I thought yes that's it I've got it um and and it's I wish now I but I didn't know in advance this would happen but I wished I'd taken pictures en route of it because you would have seen so many faces and so many contortions and so mm. many I was with glasses without glasses smiling oh. looking you know looking down looking up looking straight at you looking to the left having my hands clasped having my hands open and then you finally come in one day and you say yes that's it I've gone as far as I can go with it I can't push this any further and then you send it off into the world yeah right and you deliberately put yourself just off centre to yes. the left there like yep. that? Yep. Yes, yep. I did. Uh, again, I'm thinking of symmetry and just placing it slightly off and the lines are not straight once again. So we, so it's a, just a little bit of a vulnerable space that mm. um, is, is it's a temporary space. Mm. I mean, those curtains could fall down at any time. Mm. And do you ever paint other people? Like, would you paint... A commission or anything like that? Um, I haven't taken that on, no. Um, I, partly because I, I, I'm, I'm conscious of the person and if I paint a picture of them, they might, they start to, they, they, they look at their own ego and their own image and what they think they look like and, and you start to get into sidetracked by other things. I'm more interested in dealing with a generic person that may look like somebody. It may look like Wendy Sharp or it may look, might look like me. It, usually if it's a male figure, it is in some ways connected with me, mm. although it might not look at, you know quite like me. But uh, So if I have a male figure crossing the road or walking on a tightrope or, or stepping into a, I don't know, a, along the footpath, um, I, I, I'm always trying to... Uh, you know, I make you identify with that person, but they they might be, they, they don't have to be me. And I don't like to, when I have taken on commissions and they've said, can you paint a picture of me on, on a, my favourite bridge in Paris? And I've said, oh, I'm not sure whether you're <laughs> going to like it. And, and usually I've been right that they've said, oh, it doesn't really quite look like me. or and mm. Because they, everybody has an idea of what they look like. Yeah. So they're now no longer thinking about the painting 
of themselves on the bridge. Um, they're thinking of their memories probably 20 years ago when they were much younger and what they felt like and the romance of being there. And they're disappointed. And I don't like disappointing other yeah, people. Yeah, I know. So it's, I'm painting for myself yeah. selfishly and I'm dealing with, with figures that I think you can identify with. You can, other people can, young mm. people, old people can identify with the figures, but they're not they're not themselves directly. They're a person mm. that is just like a, watching a film and, uh, you know, a movie and seeing someone, you know, the hero or the heroine or whatever. They're people that hopefully we can all feel close to mm. um, and identify with, but they're not, they don't look like somebody no, particularly. that's right. And I think that's easier. I, I, I think from an artist's point of view, it's easier to do your work and if someone likes it, yes. you know, yes. they'll buy always, it. Yes, I mean, always, always. It's, it's, I've never, I mean, the sales in, uh, of works and things which are always the, the great mystery of art, that people think you're very significant or selling a lot or whatever, and you go through all sorts of phases where for many years I've hardly sold anything and now things are going rather well in terms of sales, but that is never impressed upon me that I'm better than I was 20 years ago when I wasn't selling much. It's just different. Mm. And, and, and really the, the reason that you paint pictures is because it's there in you and you feel like this is something you have to do um, and you're excited to do it. And if there's an audience, that's wonderful. Mm. And if there isn't an audience, well, it will appear on my walls and I'll enjoy, you know, yeah, what I've yeah. done mm. or I'll give it to friends or whatever else. I mean, it's it's something which is I have to do mm. and get through my system. And every painting I do is going to be the very best painting ever. Of course, it always falls short of that, which is why you keep going. You say, oh, I didn't quite get that, almost, <laughs> yeah, yeah. next time. Yeah. And talking about that commercial side of, of art, you're in, you've got representation in many galleries across mm. Australia and overseas in New Zealand. Um, do you think it's important for an artist to, to have that representation as broadly as they... they um, can possibly have it? I mean, um, Well, in an ideal world, yes, because um, if we're talking about Australia, which we are, um, Australia is a very fragmented art community. There's a Perth art community, there's a Brisbane art community, Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, we can go on. So there's, and Darwin, you know, every, there's, there's communities of art and people that want to buy art. And even though we're all on the internet nowadays and we can all see things and move things around much easier than we ever could before, there's still centres where people want to still see the work in the flesh so, so if you can do, I am pleased with my lot nowadays. In the, I do have representation in Brisbane, have in Auckland, have in Sydney, have in Melbourne, have in Canberra. You know, I mean, I have a number of different locations where I can put my work Perth. Um, so I have these places where I can show my ideas and it just means that you can move things around. Mm. How do you approach a gallery like for an emerging artist yeah what do they do how do they well it is difficult i mean i think that you should expect to be knocked back because there's more there's more artists than there are you know dealers or galleries um but i think you need to be um sometimes it's useful to uh know somebody and and and, and somebody that's showing in the gallery and to 
uh, ask them to, you know, if they like or support an emerging artist, as I have done in many times in the past, I've said, you should look out for this person, Google them, make your own decisions, but I would recommend mm -hmm. you think about this person. They're very committed. I think the artist also what, what needs is, sorry, to... What's committed mean? What do you think it shows uh, commitment? I think, I, think they're, I think they... Well, what I'm saying by committed is, in a nutshell, they're hard-working and they keep making art. They're, they're not going to suddenly give you an exhibition and then decide to become a film star or, 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 or do something else in the world. <laughs> right, they're yeah. going to keep painting. They're committed to making art. They've got a whole studio full of it. Um, and if you, um, so a good gallery should take people on that have shown, are prepared to keep working and keep going. I don't think it's a good idea to be having big exhibitions halfway through art school, for example, because it's premature. I think a good gallery would take artists that have finished art school and have gone even a couple of years out and so they're st and are still painting or sculpting or printmaking or whatever it is. They're still making art because it's their ideas, it's them. They're still generating their own ideas to keep going. Mm. So they're committed. Mm. And, and, you know, usually if we like them, then they can get their foot in the door and end up with a group show. And a group show leads to a solo show. But it's also the disappointments as well, because um, you can have a solo show and sell three things, which usually means that you end up, you're lucky to break even. Mm. So it, there, there is a sense that you've got to, you, you, you're, you're not in it just because you think, oh, there's a, there's a buck to be made out of this. You've got to be prepared to have lots of um, disasters. You go into the prizes because they're always useful because more people see your work, but fully expect not to get in. Yeah, right. So you, you should be... So entering prizes and getting your name out there and getting seen and and um, hopefully become a finalist and all that sort of thing. Yes, yeah. all those are stepping stones mm. bit by bit. Mm. They mm. all help to... And there are, are some people, sadly, that you look at their work and you think it's not really very good and it's not really going anywhere. And it's, I mean, I don't know. I, feel, I always feel sorry for those people because they are also committed, but mm. they don't have much talent. Mm. Now, mm. I don't know what you do about those people at the end of the day. I suppose if they're enjoying making the work, Mm. then that's their satisfaction because mm. everybody wants some sort of feedback but um, they may not ever really be taken up by major galleries mm. and and finally for any student as you know the cost to produce an artwork I mean if you I mean nobody counts uh, time you know you don't count how many hours it took leave that equation aside but materials and getting the work to the gallery the percentage that the gallery takes which is usually 40 percent sometimes more the cost to do all of that and the materials and to put it on the wall and to the framing etc etc you're if it's if you sell a piece of work for a thousand dollars you'll do well to get about $300 in your yeah. pocket from it. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. hard work. Yeah, yeah, and it's how you've usually got to have another source of income. That's right. That's right so yeah. you need to stick to your day job, yeah. which in my case I've been lucky because I've been teaching or running art schools mm. or been in you know, a, mm. you know, university senior lecturers, and, and that pays well. Mm. So I've been fortunate. Mm. But if I didn't have that, I would stack shelves in supermarkets or yeah. do something else in order 
to afford my habit, which mm. is making mm. up. Mm. And can we talk a little bit about your the space you work in? Because it's phenomenal. We, mm. you're, you're in this wonderful, huge studio. Uh, and um, I don't think we mentioned uh, Wendy Sharp is your partner and she her studio is behind your... You're in a huge sort of warehouse type mm. space. You're totally separate from each other yeah. um, and have... Gee, it must be like 30 metres long or something. Is it something like that? It is something like that. And, and, and the pl look, I've painted in, in corridors in, in, you know, small terraced houses where you can't even get back. You've got to open the bedroom door and stand <laughs> on the bed to see what you're doing. You know, in other words, I've, I've worked in the most uncomfortable, difficult places. I've also worked on the kitchen table where you draw and then someone says, right, we're having a meal and you've got to get everything <laughs> off. So I, I've been through all that and now... I have a luxurious space, which I've got from, you know, hard work in the art world itself, some sales of paintings, but also my teaching and everything else has all given me that to be able to finally get something good. Mm. The great plus about having this space, and I, and I still feel that's what makes me come in here every day, is because it's such a wonderful space. I can paint a whole exhibition and see it warts and all, all along the walls before mm. I send it off. But it's not an essential. You can paint out of a suitcase. Mm. You, you can, you know, if you have to find a small thing in, this, in your bedroom where you work on small works and, and you just keep going like that and then you exhibit those, there's, that is not a, I mean, that's tough, but it's not the end of the world. You can still pin it around walls as yeah. long as it's a wall that you can call home, even if it's above the bed and just mm. look at what you're doing. And if you do that around you all the time, that's still making art and that's still, you know, you still have to have that commitment to want to do it and in spite of not having luxurious surroundings. And do you find that um, if you can see the whole show on the wall here in the studio, it, it helps you sort of fine-tune things? Yes, yes, most definitely. I mean, it, and it's, I, I can remember many shows in the past when I couldn't do that, when I can only put up one or two paintings at a time, which, of course, is what most people have to do. And you tend to think that, therefore, the one you've done seven months ago, which you haven't really put up on the wall again because you thought it was finished, and you send off a big show of 20 works, Sometimes it's far more patchy than you thought, or the early ones were a bit tight and mm. the later ones were much looser and better, or the other way around. Mm. Um, Do you think a show should be cohesive in that way? Um, I think it should have some... Yeah, it, I mean, it can be varied, and, uh, but overall it should have a consistent level of completion. It should feel like the works all stand up for themselves and that's the luxury of having them all on the wall because you can look at things. They don't have to be the same theme, though, although galleries tend to like work that says, you know, uh, travels through Morocco and Paris. They like those titles, and so you give them Morocco or Paris works. Um, you know, but it, it doesn't and shouldn't have to be about that. It can be about large scale, small scale. My latest show with Harvey Galleries is about some larger paintings of, of boats and water. It's also about um, bits of Paris. It's also about Sydney. Mm. It's also about things from my imagination 
imagination, goldfish bowls and things like that. Mm. So it covers a wide range of, of subject matter that I've dealt with for in the past, the present, and you know will continue to in the future. Yeah, yeah. And um, can you tell me a bit about Paris? Because yeah. um, you've, you've lived there for part of the year with Wendy. Do you go to um, the Louvre and that sort of thing these still? Yeah, yeah, still, still go still to the go? Louvre. Still, I mean, probably not the Louvre so much nowadays because we've seen it so many times. Mm. Although you can never see the Louvre because it's so vast mm. that, and you always, you have to, or be selective when you go to the Louvre. Anybody that's going there, <laughs> just say, I'm going to look at the, um, you know, I don't know, the 16th century uh, Italian painting and just look at that because otherwise you'll be exhausted and you'll end up walking through everything and not taking it in. Yeah. Uh, but I, we always go and check out what's going on in the art world. There's always new exhibitions and, and new, you know, I don't know, uh, survey shows of great artists or mm, whatever, mm. retrospectives and that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, so there's so much going on, it's just a, a, a wonderful source. I often say to people, well, it's like a, a cultural injection. It's like a shot in the arm. And <laughs> you kind of see all this and you make art. And then I can come back to Sydney and I can live off the dreams and that world. And it doesn't mean I have to paint pictures of Paris, but I've seen other things and they all of what you see in your experiences all play a part in mm. what you're doing in the studio or well, what I'm doing at the moment. You've had a lot of experience. I mean, you've travelled all over the world. You've been to Antarctica, mm. you've been to, you know, Kazakhstan, <laughs> Egypt, um, and you went to China with yeah. Wendy. And I understand you're treated like superstars. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were. It was it was a bizarre experience. And, um, we're, I mean, yes, you know, one, one day you're... you're treated like nothing as as it you know being you know in the town in sydney or whatever else the next day you're on a red carpet with people playing the waltz in matilda and uh and, and marching down you know for a huge interviews with tv cameras or whatever uh with our work on banners all across the city so so yes we we've got amazing experiences and um I don't know. I mean, you enjoy the moment, as yeah, they say. Enjoy yeah, the yeah. moment, but, well, but get back to reality very quickly. That's right. Well, I suppose travel uh, must inject something into your into your work when you get back home, back, back to the studio. Yes, I, th I, I think that when... I, I like travelling um, partly because I like to explore new places and things I haven't seen before. And the, and the earth is, you know, getting smaller and smaller in terms of where you can go to nowadays, and that's exciting. Um, but I think that uh, what I often say is if you go to a new place, even if it's just down the road or up the road, from you go from Sydney to the Blue Mountains, for example, it, as long as you just travel somewhere where you're not familiar you step outside your comfort zone. And as soon as you do that, you notice things in a different way. Mm. Now, that's particularly so when you're in foreign lands because it's a foreign alphabet and language in front of you as well. So everything is different. So the, the curb and channeling and the lamppost and the, mm. and the way they've designed this or the colours they use in India, and you're not used to it. And you have to find as an artist, a visual language in a way to record those experiences. Mm. And that makes you do things that you wouldn't have done if you're in your comfort environment. Now, I like to ask um, my guests about if they've got a routine or what conditions they need in the studio for them to feel like they can start working. Do you have 
something you do every time or, or a certain routine that you follow? Um, up to a point. Um, it depends where I am. In, it, I mean, if I've got half a painting, I mean, I usually put up what I've got on the walls, as I said before. So my first thing that I do is I walk in and look at what I did the day before, the night before. I paint pretty much every day. Mm. So I weekends so as well. Weekends yeah, as well. Right. I mean, I don't. I, I, sometimes someone says it's Saturday. Is it? Is it? <laughs> I thought it was Tuesday. I mean, you you live in your own world in the studio. I mean, I have obviously have to do other things in life, like you know, answer, you know, emails and go shopping and all those. But but overall, I try the routine and discipline of painting all the time. I always put the work up overnight sometimes even with marks on it saying rubbish, change this or whatever, <laughs> and I pin it up there. So the, my first thing that I do in the morning is I look at what I've just done and think, oh, I thought that worked. It doesn't. There's something wrong with that. Oh, maybe. And I come up with ideas. So that's mm. my starting point. Mm. When I'm in the flow state, I like to put on a piece of usually classical music, and it can be anything from Shostakovich to Sibelius to Tchaikovsky to uh, Elena Katz-Chernin. To, I, I want to play and have some music going in the studio that transports me into my headspace, mm. particularly if I've been thinking about something else or mm. annoyed about, you know, whatever it is in mm. the world or just heard Donald Trump speak or something. <laughs> I think I need That'll to... do I, it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I need to just get into my own world. And so that's the way I do that. So that's my next thing is to put music on and to try a favourite piece or, or mm. listen to Classic FM and just get into that zone. Mm. Um, after that, well, it really depends on, on what I'm, you know, what the priorities are. I always have exhibitions planned for the future. So I'm often thinking I've got lots of small works for Brisbane coming up. I need to do some larger ones. And, and so I start thinking about what it is I require. Mm. Because in this day and age as well, with any artist, they want work three months out before the exhibition. They want to advertise it on the web or they want to, you know, mm. they want images of it. So you've got to get it photographed as well, which is another expense mm. since we're talking about expenses. So you need to have all that so that, so you need to be well prepared and ahead of schedule. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Bernard. It was just, it's an absolute pleasure being here in your studio. Good luck with your upcoming show. I'm really looking forward to being there on opening night on Friday. Well, thank you very much. And I, I really enjoyed your um, interesting, challenging questions. What a great sharing of information and advice from a wonderful artist. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Bernard Ollis. Get to Harvey Galleries in Sydney's Mossman to see his show, Being There. It's really worth it. And I'll be getting a short video of Bernard in his studio onto the Talking With Painters YouTube channel within a week or so. Um, I'll also have that whole video on Facebook too and a clip of it on Instagram and Twitter. Also, you can hear my interview with Bernard's partner, Wendy Sharp, on the podcast. It's episode 45. Thanks for all your messages on Facebook and Instagram and for the ratings and reviews on iTunes. I feel so supported by you all and love to hear from you. You can always direct message me on Instagram and the Talking With Painters uh, Facebook page. Hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters.
you know, it's a 2D surface that you make 3D by inventing things and allowing us to walk through and explore another world. Mm. And I have never liked repeating myself. I've always liked the idea that every canvas, even today, is a totally new, enthralling experience. Mm.